Welcome to Star Trek Voyager, a theological journey. In this week's episode, Voyager is desperately low on tellurium, a component vital to antimatter stability. When arranging a trade on a Mokra-controlled planet, Tuvok and Torres are arrested for conspiring with the Alcerian resistance. Janeway is injured and rescued by Calum, a resistance fighter. Lonely and senile, the man nurses Janeway, believing her to be his long-lost daughter. Well, we are going to begin with very sinister voices this week, whilst we wear our black leather, aren't we? That way we'll be able to terrify everyone who might be mistakenly thinking we might be good guys instead of bad guys. I did like the way they actually made Democra seem very, very sinister in the way that they spoke slow and decisively and they wore their, their black leather and they squeaked every time they moved. Uh, they, they, uh, they were terrifying Gestapo types, weren't they? Yes, they did look a little like stormtroopers or something like that. <laughs> they did look like black stormtroopers, I thought. And I thought um, August, is that his name, who was the chief honcho of the... Um of the Mokra, he was particularly sinister. He, he did remind me of the SS. He seemed so plausible and so reasonable, and he was neither. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't a huge surprise, but it was a good reveal, you know, when he's been up talking to Chakotay and saying, oh, you know, I'm I'm on your side, but there are others who aren't, and then you, you cut to the scene where he walks into the cell and uh, is, is going to grab... Um, uh, Tuvok for some uh, questioning. Uh, I, I liked that. You know, you were expecting it, but hey, it showed that he was two-faced and evil. Yes, he was two-faced and evil. So the name of this episode is called Resistance, um, and I, I was really taken by its name because I guess the immediate connection that you could make with Resistance is the resistance that Balana and Tuvok had to put up um, which was actually a, a stoic kind of uh, enduring hardship resistance. But um, I was also taken by the resistance uh, that was put up uh, by Calum, uh, played by Joel Grey uh, in this episode. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's probably two very interesting forms of resistance that we can actually um, explore in this episode. Well, there's kind of three, because there is the resistance of a group of people who are opposing um, the... Um... What are they called? Mokra. The opera. Mokra, Mokra yeah. Mm. Um, and there seems to be quite a network of them, which reminded me a bit of the French resistance during the war. And uh, it was interesting because at the start, as the um, episode began unfolding, I found myself sort of wondering what's going on, you know, and asking myself the ethical question, even if this planet is under the thumb of these, uh, you know, evil tyrannical sorts, um, why is Voyager just down there grabbing stuff? Now, as it, as it kind of unfolds, they did a trade and presumably, you know, that was a, um, at, at least uh, somewhat legal and whatever, but it, it just... It, it did make me wonder, you know, because it's not that Voyager are there being part of the resistance because they see the evil of the Mokra overlords and want to stand against them. They're there purely for their own personal reasons. We want to get this stuff. We've found it here. So we're, you know, jumping in and, and, and hiding ourselves and trying to get the stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just did raise that ethical question for me about Voyager's involvement in this whole thing at all. Yeah, I think that's right because, I mean, uh, the Mokra bloke makes the point that they haven't asked to trade or asked to enter their space or whatever it is you do when you're on interplanetary stuff. Um, and um, he sends along his document. I mean, obviously he, they knew they were there and probably knew what they were doing. But it's like we'll just go there and we'll take it and we'll go away again. And I was also very bemused while you'd send the captain on what should be a fairly mundane kind of shopping expedition to get your stuff. So I thought that was odd. Because she's super science chain way and, and she, she likes to have everything to do with science stuff. So she probably didn't trust Balana to get the right stuff. I'm finding that difficult to believe that you'd actually send the captain down to do this. I'm sorry. 
I also feel, though, there was a writing point that was being made. Um, remember that we're in the 1990s here during production, and so there is a sense in which trying to um, to portray a captain, uh, a woman in the role of a captain is actually uh, a, a new thing. And, and perhaps the fans um, of Star Trek are, are, are not ready for or might be uncomfortable with this, this role. Uh, they're used to seeing, uh, you know, the, the, the manly hero um, making a, a, a saving the day. Uh, and and I, I wondered whether to send Chakotay or somebody else out on a regular basis um, to, um, to, to, to solve the problems might actually have have sent a counter message to the one that the writers were looking for by um by casting a female captain possibly either that or she still doesn't trust Jakote after last week's misadventure with him taking a shuttle and going off to save the world on his own what so she, she leaves him in control gone. of the whole ship is that right that that <laughs> like don't right. trust him you've got the con again so <laughs> exactly we seem I mean, to have gotten over that very quickly uh, I think you are onto something, Will, and it reminds me actually of, uh, you know, uh, conservative interpretations of the, the story of the Judge Deborah, um, which inevitably paint her as, you know, just this sort of figurehead who who's, uh, sits back and doesn't do anything and, and sends the men to do the, the real fighting. And, and I don't think that's at all accurate, but that's that's, I guess, the trap that could have been there that that she would be seen as purely this figurehead who has to send the men to to do the action bit so I, I think you may well be right I think there was a real danger in the way they've done this casting for to fall into tokenism to actually say well we'll put we'll put the uniform on we'll put the pips on but we won't we won't take it any further than that and I I, I think I I'm really happy with the way that the writers are really trying to authentically engage. I take your point, Elizabeth. Um, but then again, if we were to took it, look at precedent, we would discover that um, Captain Cisco on Deep Space Nine seems to go out wherever he wants to. Captain Kirk was renowned for beaming down in every single away mission, even when he was questioned about it by his first officer. So there is that um, there is that precedent that uh, captains are larger than life and can. Um, um, go anywhere and be anyone and won't ask their people to do anything they wouldn't do themselves. And I think that Picard, um, even even though initially it was made a big thing of the fact that, that actually Riker wouldn't let him, you know, do these dangerous things, as, as, the, as the next generation progressed, they actually had to manufacture reasons why Picard needed to be the hero. So, you know, everyone else is off the ship and he's the only one left and so he has to do the action man thing or whatever it might be. So I think, you know, they, they had that idea and they went hard at the start and then they had to sort of row it back a bit because you you actually want your hero to to be in the action and to be a person who who gets out there and and does stuff yep i understand from a writer's point of view that makes perfect sense and i think that um captain janeway does acquit herself really well not only is she a good hero material and finding a way into the um prison and helping release her crew members the compassion she shows to the unfortunate older man who's helping her, I think it's really touching and I quite like that. I can't imagine Captain Kirk doing that. No. No, no I think he would have stoically have headed off by himself and, and said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this work. And I, I, that's one of the things that I really admire about the character of Janeway is that um, she's very ready to change her mind. Uh, yeah. And I think what we see in leadership, especially masculine leadership today, is that, you know, if, if a leader has to make a, an, a different decision, sometimes it, it actually um, it can be cast as backflipping or, or weakening or, or and even the word compromise has actually become a, a, a compromised word these days. It actually seems to reflect weakness to be able to compromise, whereas Janeway turns that into her great strength. And I think it is a great strength. I mean, if you can't move with new discoveries, if you can't change your mind in the face of new information, whatever that might look like, if you don't actually grow and evolve, then what's the point? 
I love that moment where Janeway is looking on at um, at Calum um, as he um, de-escalates the situation with the Morgra SS as they've captured one of the resistance leaders um and he and 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 she's got this look of panic as she fears that the incompetent and and slightly crazy Calum is actually falling into a dangerous place when in fact Calum uses his the power of the fool to be able to overcome the 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 problem that's in front of them and and plays right into it and and I, i love that we're watching janeway wordlessly come to comprehend um, the power that that Calum has in his ability to go places, because that that image of the fool exists in Shakespeare and literature everywhere. The fool can go anywhere and has the ability to to challenge the sovereign in a way that no one else can. Well, it's even uh, a, an idea that people have um, uh, thought about in terms of Jesus, Jesus as the holy fool, as the the person who challenges the system in. Uh, sometimes, you know, quite incomprehensible ways, um, and and has that ability to speak out uh, in in a way that sometimes others who are locked into the system don't. So, yeah, it's a great moment, and I think it's it's then given uh, even more impetus later when we hear the backstory that actually they they knew Calum well, that he regularly interacted with them and 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 he had become a figure of fun for them. And so he actually is turning that against them and and using the fact that they see him as this figure of fun uh to save the other fellows um from incarceration. I did wonder about that, why the mocker just didn't shoot him. Um I'm you know, they said he kept, it was August who said they kept him alive to remind others of something, and I wasn't quite sure what that something was or whether that really held water or whether he was just entertainment value for them. But I thought if they were that bloodthirsty and they'd killed his family, why not just dispatch him? I think they saw him as weak, um, and, and I think they saw him as broken, um, and they, they, they believed that they had broken him by taking his wife and, and taking his family. And, and I think the reminder they were trying to put out to the rest of the community was this brokenness comes to you also. But in the, his brokenness, he actually finds another great, a, a greater strength, I think. I, I was doing some reading around this because I've always loved the concept of the figure of the fool. And I, I read an article that came out from the Durham um, University Press that talks about uh, a, an incident in November 2007 on the U.S.-Mexico border where a clown company, a company of clowns, actually um, um, was was formed um, to dance in costume to de-escalate situations where they were concerned that people might die. Um, and so there, it's a really fascinating um, um, uh, um, understanding of this this idea that that there are times where we actually need to exercise a different kind of power to stop um, violence from from um, coming up without surrendering or without um, without um, uh, capitulating. Mm. And it, it's it's that um, it's the power or the authority of the the powerless person. So the clown is one uh, approach to this, but it, it's also the child, isn't it? So, you know, in the, mm. in the story of the emperor's new clothes, it's, it's the child who is able to break free from the constraints of society and say, Hey, he's got no clothes on, you know, isn't this stupid? Uh, whereas all, all the adults are locked into their fear and their sense of social propriety and, and are afraid to say anything. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also it's contrasted with the resistance of Tuvok, which is a different resistance again mm. when he's tortured and he says the power he has is to not give them what they want. Yep, that's Even their if it resistance. Means something horrible is happening to him. Yeah, that's his resistance at that point. I really enjoyed the dialogue between Tuvok and Balana in the cell and the way in which um, Balana is, is wanting to resist you know, by physically um, being more powerful or, or, or by being able to outsmart them. And that is the way in the end that they do actually uh, get free, um, you know, that, that she's trying to beat him up. And then uh, Tuvok uses the Vulcan neck pinch. We get to see the Vulcan neck pinch again um, mm. and, um, and, uh, and drops the guard with the touch. Um, so I, 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 think, I think it's really 
useful in this episode for us to be able to think about those, as you've said, Elizabeth, those three forms of resistance that um, are there, mm -hmm. the, the organized militia type resistance, um, the resistance of, of the fool and the resistance of, of force. Um, and, and often when we're under stress, uh, the fight or flight mentality will actually for push us into the place of saying the only way to deal with this is, is with great force. Um, but um, I, I, I'm very partial to foolishness myself. <laughs> well, he's not really a fool in some ways. He's quite canny. He may have a broken mind, but he's not stupid. Yeah, I and agree. He... I, yeah, I'm not using the word that way. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, I know you're not. I was just thought I'd make that point. Um, and, I mean, the Mokra treat him like he's stupid and he's not at all. He's quite canny about certain things. And I think he shows that even though he's mistaken about the identity of Janeway and uh, thinking it's his daughter, he shows that the power of love actually in the end does overcome the nastiness of the SS, as it were, in this particular episode anyway. So, I mean, that relationship between Janeway and um, what, what's his name in the uh, episode? Caleb. Caleb. Is, is uh, an interesting one. And I, I think for me at the moment, um, we've got um, a, a member of our household uh, who is um, struggling with uh, memory issues. Um, and it it's a really interesting thing. You know, how, how do you treat someone who is not grasping the reality of, of the situation? Do you, do you correct them? Do you go along with them? And it's interesting, Janeway tries a bit of both. You know, at first she's sort of trying to say, no, I'm not your daughter and, you know, I'm, I'm a starship captain and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and by the end, she's fully turned around to actually whispering words to him which buy into his story uh, because she believes that that they'll bring comfort to him in in his last minute so it's a it's a really interesting ethical uh, conundrum there which Janeway uh, is confronting and and which um, you know we're confronting in our own household at the moment. Well I think Janeway is way ahead of her time actually because research shows now in dementia um, facilities that if you buy into some of the story that the people are telling, they actually do better. Mm. So giving them dolls if they think there's a child or letting them talk about someone in a certain way or go on certain little expeditions around the garden and, and sort of spin the tail seems to keep people happier and more content and more well. So I think, I think Janeway's onto something. I think it's fascinating too. I mean, we... Uh... We, like Janeway, fell into the trap of thinking he was mistaken. But the narrative that he was crafting um, about her being his daughter um, actually became true, um, that, that, um, that, that she, she did come into that role and that partway through the, the episode, um, you know, you really did feel that there was a father-daughter type relationship happening there, the way they were interacting and talking to each other. And that, that the way that Caleb crafts his, his narrative, I think perhaps for his own uh, mental protection, um, actually is the saving grace for the whole episode. And in the end, um, I think um, Janeway reflects that grace back to him as he's dying um, mm. so that he dies with a sense of, of peace. I love the necklace as well. The image of the necklace for me was, was really, really moving that, that, um, that, that was given freely um and without like you know she thought oh i can't give this away because it was given to me but but he immediately says no use it do do whatever with it and she still has it at the end which i thought was really really moving i i do have to say that uh, i i think for myself i'm not quite there yet you know I, i'm still kind of in that that middle section of, of janeway's approach to him which is the sort of a, a deflecting or accepting what he says but without um, you know, sort of uh, agreeing necessarily or whatever, and there's there's a part of me that 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 resists actually going along with it and an outright untruth. Um, I, I there's a part of me in in my own personal life that that you know is okay about saying, oh, is that okay? is is that right when when you know the person says something that's clearly not right. Um, 
but I'm not sure that I, I, I feel good about actually going along with the, the misstatement. And, and I think for me, it, it, I, I was uh, listening to what you were saying, Elizabeth, about how it, it keeps people happy and, and whatever if you go along with them. And it, I don't know, there's something a, a little bit patronising about that, that we determine what, what they need and, and so we, you know, go along with them because it'll keep them happy or something. I, I don't know. I, there's still a part of me that, that wants to say there's, there's a value to truth, there's a value to reality. What is truth, though? Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Whose reality? (laughs) Is it your reality or the person's reality? And going along with their reality, how is that patronising? That's their reality. And if you try and tell them it's not, they will resist you, and I'm sure you know that. Um, So to go along with someone who really believes that reality, and it is their reality, how is that a lie or how is that not right or how is that patronising? I, I, I'm science guy, remember? So for me, you know, it's it still does matter that when you step off a cliff, uh, gravity will always assert itself at eight point nine meters per second per second, no matter what you think your reality is. But that's yes, not that's true, true, Lindsay. It isn't true, Lindsay, because if you step off a cliff on the moon, then that will not <laughs> that will happen. Be different. So, so there there are situations where where truths become lies and lies become truths, and I think that that's that's actually. I think to assert always that that our truth as we know it um, is is the greater form of of condescension, it's the greater sort form of of patronisation. Um, I, I remember when I first started um, thinking about doing a podcast podcast series on faith and fiction, um, and I was talking to people about it, and they would look at me like people look at Calum and say, "Oh, look, you're out of your mind." There's there's no you know, theology is a serious business, somebody said to me, and and uh, we shouldn't be making light of it uh, by doing what you're proposing. Um, and, and and I had to just continue to c- convince myself of the narrative. Um, and 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 now, um, you know, um, nearly two years later and uh, uh, and 5,000 listens and, and all of the people who are actually a part of this community, which we have established through the, the podcast, I, I really feel like, there is a sense in which you do sometimes have to fake it till you make it. You have to, you have to say, no, I believe there is something in this, even if it's very difficult to see, or, or it might not actually be there at all uh, in some people's eyes. And psychology is a science, but it's a science that will tell you that there isn't black and white. There's lots of grey and how people respond to different situations and how people are affected by different situations is going to have a lot of variables. It's not as clear-cut as if you step off a cliff on the planet Earth, you'll go splat because of gravity. Yeah, no, look, I mean, I get all that, and, and I, I, I get the fact that, that uh, people's realities can have a, a sense of of becoming and being real for them. But, you know, there's there's still a part of me that if someone says, I've been to that place and you know full well they haven't been to that place, that there's actually a discontinuity with, um, you know, the reality of, of the world and, and life. And, and, and sure, you can say, well, they've been there in their head or they've watched lots of movies about it and so they feel like they've been there. And, yeah, sure, they feel like they've been there, but they've, they've never touched that soil. But if they've got dementia, what does it matter? Oh, no, I, I agree with you entirely. I, I'm, just, yeah. I'm just saying for, for me, myself, there's still that resistance to entirely affirming something which which is a mistake or a delusion or, or whatever as opposed to simply accepting what they say or you know deflecting or whatever ask them to tell you about it i remember when i was in launceston a few years ago robin williams died um and and i i, I can remember feeling absolutely gutted um and 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 i was sitting um in a in a cafe with a couple of other guys who were there friends who were there and they were we were all talking about robin williams and we were saying oh and what about that time when he did this and what about that time and and we all stopped and went it's kind of like he was one of us because we've got all of these memories and scenarios and places and and speeches none of them are real and yet Mm. they're all real and and i wonder whether i wonder how the science 
I have to say I'm really enjoying having Elizabeth on my side as we take on this, <laughs> this, uh, this resistance from, uh, from Lindsay here. Um, but I, 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 I guess I wanted to say, well, well how, does, how does the science deal with the paradox of the wisdom of God is foolish to, to, to human beings? Like, uh, you know, the, the, the Bible is f- so full of paradox um, that that I'm I'm I I fear sometimes we spend way too much time ignoring. It is full of paradoxes. The whole Christian story and a, a goodly part of the Jewish story is based on paradoxes, which seems like a strange thing because there isn't. You can't have certainty when you you're sort of living out your faith built on a paradox. So mm. yes, I'm absolutely in agreement with you, Will. Yeah, I mean, I love a good paradox. And, and I guess for me, you, you know, as someone for whom the intersection of, of uh, science and faith has been a big part of my own journey and my uh, both academically and otherwise, um, I, I always in the end come down to a, a sense of I'm quite happy to accept that there are things beyond uh, what what we understand scientifically. I I cavil at it when we're asked to believe things which um, actually don't just go beyond but actually um, contradict uh, scientific uh, evidence or, or, or um, our, our best understanding of the universe. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explain <laughs> such strange design? Uh, you know, like I, every time I sing those words, I kind of go, oh, this is, this is, this is my, that's, that's at the heart of my faith. Uh, for for me, the the inexplicable contrary is is something that actually says to me there's something in this that that if it were all explainable and quantifiable and measurable, um, then then wouldn't I just be looking at the image of myself rather than something that was far beyond my own personal understanding? I think that's a really good way of putting it, Will. And I think often we do fall into the trap of trying to create the universal God in our own image and what we think it should be. And I think I agree with Hamlet, you know, there are more things in heaven and earth than we've ever dreamt of or understand Horatio. And, you know, maybe science will uncover them at some point in time, but it hasn't yet. And, you know, as someone who studied neuroscience, which was my favourite discipline in psychology, I just know when brain chemicals change, and they do, if depending on if you take substances or if you have a disease or something happens to you, you can be in a reality that's only in your head, but it's completely real as if it was three-dimensional and all around you. Well, let us stop beating up Lindsay um, before his <laughs> resistance breaks and he tells us all the secrets that, that could be done. I never um, will. I, <laughs> I, uh, on you, Lindsay. I, I'm... I'm I love that we've had a Shakespearean quote there. There are um, so many fools um, in um, Shakespeare that the fool is actually a a, a significant literary device. Um, and and even when we look at, at more more modern literature like Game of Thrones, um, the 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 dwarf, the bastard, and the fool are actually um, um, the significant characters, the ones that um, that that are able to um, to move forward. Um, and and uh, once again, I'll quantify. I'm not suggesting that there's any lack of intelligence in these. In fact, there is actually sometimes a greater level of intelligence and yeah. strategy in the way the fool conducts themselves. Um, wh- what are our favourite fools? Oh, that's an interesting question. In literature, you mean? Yeah, well, well, you can talk about Barnaby Joyce, I guess, if you wanted to. But you no, know, like, he's not um... my favourite fool. He is a fool, <laughs> but he's not a clever fool. He's a drunken one. I uh, I had to laugh the other day, just to digress into politics for a moment. But uh, in question time, um, the leader of the opposition got up and said, uh, in the middle of Barnaby Joyce's speech, uh, uh, "Mr. Speaker, a point of order on weirdness," because um, there was yes. just no sense <laughs> in the incoherent bubble that was coming out of his mouth. I reckon he'd been in the bar myself. <laughs> I mean, I, watched it. I, I think um, I, I kind of answered this uh, a bit earlier, Will, because for me that the image of Jesus as the fool is a really powerful one. And, and it's one that Paul picks up, you know, when he talks about how, how God has used the weak and, and the foolishness of God confounds the wise and so forth, that that there there's something about the, um, you know, that, 
paradoxical nature of of Jesus not being, you know, some um, omnipotent, you know, wise sage sitting on top of the the hill, uh, just um, extolling, you know, profundities, but actually the person who tells stories which don't make sense and and that that actually confound people because they they go against uh the the way the world is and you know so i i love that sense that that in that way jesus is the fool and the whole the whole way that um we are given this uh picture of jesus defeating uh sin evil death um not by having more power and more might but actually by being vulnerable and, and by uh, giving himself up to death is, you know, I think a, a kind of, of the fool's way to win the war, a, a bit similar to Caleb, uh, you know, being mocked and, and criticised and putting himself in harm's way in order to save the other guy. I think the other thing about Jesus that actually supports what you're saying about Jesus as the fool, Lindsay, is, we miss often in our serious Protestant natures that there's a lot of funny stuff that's actually mm. in our Bible. And Humor, some yep. of the stuff Jesus says, we lose it in translation because in the Greek there's these quite funny puns yep. and other things that Jesus does that border on slapstick, um, if you could imagine them being acted out. And I'm grateful to James McGrath, shout out to James McGrath, um, here for his book, what Jesus was, uh, what Jesus learnt from women, because um, he's pointed out some of those, and that Jesus was actually funny, which is also part of being the fool, and and goes mm. along with what you're saying. And I think we really do miss that aspect of Jesus with the way we read our Bibles and we're taught to take it so seriously, and our translators actually don't help us. We miss these things. I think some of that stuff comes out in the portrayal of Jesus in um, Godspell as well, where where yes. the, the the Jesus character in that is is quite the fool, um, and um, uh, and I I think we also see that where the disciples actually rebuke Jesus for being foolish or speaking foolishly, especially towards the end of the 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 gospel narratives, um, where where we get this this portrayal of Jesus actually not towing the line, not not being the 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 proper uh, leader figure of force that they might hope or anticipate that he was going to be. And and I think just to pick up on your point, Elizabeth, one of the things that I really uh, bemoan is the way in which uh, a supposed reverence for the text drains all the life out of it. And, you know, so yeah. when I, I was, uh, you know, training lay preachers, one of the things we would sometimes do is uh, I'd, I'd get someone to do a Bible reading and I'd just say, oh, could you do this Bible reading from wherever? And they'd do that. And then I'd get the same person uh, to read a children's book. And and the difference in their demeanor and in the amount of energy yeah. and enthusiasm and characterization they put into it, and then we'd have a conversation. Why is it that you could put all that life and energy and vitality into the children's book, but you know when we listen back to the way you read the Bible, it was this monotonous, you know, um, you know, no life and just flat. And uh, I think that's such a, a shame. Perhaps we could get the Mokra to read the Bible for us and say <laughs> in the beginning there was God and, you know, like. Uh... But I think you're right. And I think people, like I've noticed when they get in the pulpit, their pronunciation changes too. We've always got the Holy Spirit, you know, and the Holy Spirit came. <laughs> uh, and I think there is that kind of almost monotone because you're taking it so solemnly and seriously. And... Uh, as I said, our translators do not help this because they don't actually translate the jokes or in a way that we get them. And the Bible has rather a lot of them and we just mm. miss them unless you do theological college and have a good Hebrew teacher or something like that. You just don't see them. Don't get them. I think um, that they really, that the figure of Caleb in our story here brings that home too because at the end of our story, he dies so that they can all be free. So his his foolishness and his 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 um, uh, inability to to protect himself, even though Janeway wants to protect him and stop him um, from doing something that might cause him to die, ends up 
bringing about his own death um and and so sets the crew and the resistance free um which is and i and i love that line in it where the the resistance leader says we will not forget what has been done here today. I thought this man really was the son of God. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah I that was nice. Though. It was. And I guess in the end that he set himself free or Janeway helped set him free by telling him he's forgiven in some ways that heals his soul. Mm. And before he dies, he's set free from that guilt that he's confessed to her. So yep. I thought that was nice that she played along with that and allowed him to have that before he died. Yep. And, and it's interesting because it actually, uh, coming back to Will's comment about Caleb as a broken person, it, it actually helps us to understand that his brokenness wasn't because it was imposed by the Mokra. It was actually something that came out of his own sense mm, of yeah. self and his own sense it. that he had been a coward and let his wife down and, and he was the reason that she died. And, and, and uh, yeah, he, he, he broke himself. Um, and Janeway helps him to have that final uh, moment of resolution. He did yes. not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself low. How's that for my uh, Philippians 2 um, reading? Look, Very you nice. Just, you've swallowed a text today, Will. There's no doubt <laughs> about that. Probably Look, my, several of them. I've probably over-researched over this particular episode. I, I really did enjoy it. Like I, I would put it up there with one of my favourite episodes because of the acting, the style and the story. But also, I mean, I do have a, a place in my heart for The Fool. Uh, and I, in answer to my own question earlier, my favourite fool is um, the, the fool Scaramouche, um, who's been oh, my, yes. most favorite, famous by, um, by uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which, which I think strikes a chord with so many people because of its foolishness, because of its, 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 its place of railing against the power but actually having no ability to do anything about it. But Scaramouche was a 16th century clown, um, but he was also an assassin. Um, and I've always wanted to play the clown assassin uh, in a role-playing <laughs> game at some stage um, because um, there'd be nothing better than doing the Fandango whilst uh, completing a mission, I think. so. I mean, it's fascinating uh, then to ask the question, why is it that clowns also uh, in popular culture can then bleed into the horrific and the, the entirely mm. evil, you know, uh, Stephen King's It, Pennywise mm. the Clown. And, and uh, I mean, that, that's an interesting thing, isn't it, that, you know, we're playing with this, the clown in the liminal space uh, of the holy and of the person who has authority to uncover what's there and so forth. And yet on the other end of the spectrum, there's also this liminal space where, fun descends into terror um you know and that's that's again quite a popular sort of um uh, trope with clowns it is and there's a lot of people quite phobic about clowns and whether or not it's because of that his you know horror motif where you've got clowns like pennywise but i think in in some ways it's you can have it the same coin with different sides and one morphs very readily into the other well, is it chlorophobia is the name, the, the phobia of clowns, I think? is. Um, My but, sister uh, has a phobia of clowns, so I know it's yeah. a real thing. She's terrified oh, definitely. of clowns. Uh, and, and I think because clowns do have the capacity to expose um, and and make vulnerable the powerful, then, then there is, a, I guess, a reason for fear there. It's because, too, they're masked. One of the things she doesn't like about them is they're masked. You can't see their face. You can't read their expression or know their intentions. You don't know what's going on behind it. That's a real big thing that's in, in this fear she has. Yeah, not only the masking, but the, but the fact that they're not themselves, that they're playing a, a role. And, and I know when Ellie was yeah. very young, she was terrified of, of Santa Claus uh, to the extent that we actually had to, quite young, tell her, look, this is not real. It's It's just people playing that because, you know, she she would um, scream and get very terrified, you know, if we wanted to take her to the, the Santa Claus in the mall or even when, you know, uh, people that she knew from church were playing the role of Santa Claus and, and, and she wouldn't want to go anywhere near them and would get very distressed. Well, Santa Claus 
Santa Claus is terrifying. I mean, they, mm. they can get into your house without without <laughs> permission. You know, not even vampires can do that. I mean, you know, like That's Santa right. Claus has got significant power to uh, to wreak havoc. Um, but you know, you better watch out. Only once you know. Yeah. But but he only gives you bits of coal. You know, he doesn't suck your blood. Well, there are. Oh, there are some nasty Santa Clauses yeah. in the world. Look at look at Black Peter. And the Krampus. I mean, he's not um, very nice at all. Uh, yeah, the Krampus. Uh, you're all a bunch nice of Grinches. <laughs> um, the other thing, just while we're talking about That's masks, right. isn't it amazing what puppets can say? Um, you know, a, a ventriloquist um, usually um, plays the straight person in their human self and says the, the unsayable things um, with their with their puppet. Um, and and it, it it strikes me sometimes that we, we often talk about oh well you know that one is the puppet of the other and yet yet uh, often the more forceful confident strong truth speaking individual between uh, the puppet and the puppet master is the puppet themselves um, using a voice that the puppet master can't normally yes. use without um, without uh, risk to them to their reputation or or themselves. I don't know if either of you yes. remember Fantasy Island. Bus, the plane, the plane, the plane. The plane. <laughs> and there was one. That's it, the plane in this, yes. Um, there was an episode there where one of the guests came and she was a puppeteer and she had this puppet and um, she felt the puppet was kind of taking her over. And, of course, being Fantasy Island, the puppet mm. becomes a real creature or human and um, not the just the doll. And... Um, you know, it was really about pitting your lighter side against your darker side in that episode because the puppet carried everything that wasn't particularly nice but was honest where the other nicer puppeteer just couldn't confess she had certain feelings or mm. wanted to do certain things. So it was quite an interesting episode. It was really about a battle of, you know, the ego and the alter ego or something like that, I suppose, if you wanted to put it in mm. Freudian mm. terms. Absolutely. I wanted to circle back um, just we were talking before about why were they sticking their nose into this planet at the beginning. Um, and, um, yeah, but but in this oh, particular case, um, there's a level of desperation. They I needed the tellurium. They needed the tellurium. If they didn't have the tellurium, then they, they were going to have to shut down life support and lots of other really important things. And so... We, we did talk earlier about, oh, well, is it ethical to go to somebody's planet and 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 take stuff um, when we know we shouldn't? Um, but in this case, I think Neelix has warned them about what the Mokra are like. They were fairly certain they weren't going to get a warm reception. They absolutely needed a tellurium. At what point um, is it is it ethical to actually... Uh, take by stealth something that doesn't belong to you? I, I think that's a really interesting question. I don't know. They took it. They paid for it. It was for sale. From so the Mokra's perspective, sense, though, yeah, they would have thought and that they the Mokra would, would have said they took what they did, didn't belong to them or they, they didn't have any rights to be there. So I guess that's the question I'm asking is when desperation forces us to a particular point, um, where, where, when is it time to abandon our ethic is, is a great question, I think. Well, of course, if, if you've got a more consequentialist sort of ethical framework, you don't have to abandon your ethic. You simply look at the current situation and say, well, what are the consequences of acting this way or that way? And if the consequence is, you know, the life of the whole crew, uh, then perhaps that overweighs any uh, ethical um uh, concerns about uh, you know going and, and making this trade in a in a planet where they wouldn't have been welcome to approach uh, overtly. Oh, and also, you've uh, for me, I suppose I thought, you know, do you actually try and trade with the SS, and is this going to end well? Mm. And the question probably is, no, it's not. And if you really need it, and that this is an occupied planet, as it were. Um, I suppose the those who are uh, who are the oppressed yeah. will benefit from what are your the ethics of actually uh, resourcing the oppressors in order to get what you want as well? I mean, uh, do we do we yeah. do we trade with people who we know are actually engaged in the violation of human rights? Uh, is is a great question. Well, and I think 
Yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah, we when were we watching West weapons. Wing the other day where there's exactly Sorry. that, you know, there's a sort of a, a Saudi Arabia uh, analogue uh, that they're selling a whole bunch of weapons to and, and CJ's very upset that, you know, they're, we're selling weapons to people who are torturing women, you know. Um, but uh, I guess for me part of my concern is that they're, they're very much about just, getting what they need. And I think I would have almost felt better if they had not only done this trade with the resistance, but they had materially aided the resistance. They'd, they'd said, you know, we, we're going to help you because we can see the injustice uh, of your situation and and we're not just going to buy this stuff off you. We're actually going to help you in some way. And I think for me it was almost that we don't want to get involved in your your petty little squabbles uh, you know, we just want what we want and then we'll go sort of thing that, that made me a bit more uneasy. Whereas if they had actually um, been helping the oppressed against the oppressors and in return getting something for it, that that would have felt better for me. I guess it would be hard, though, to work out how they could have reasonably done that, being one starship with, you know, they don't have an army tucked away on it. So it's hard to know exactly what they could do to help the resistors and how that would work itself out when you've got a starship to run and you can't kind of move into the planet because resistance usually isn't something that's over in 10 minutes. It's a long-term haul. So I'm just not sure what they could have done given that perhaps, happens, or, perhaps or even if I they had know. engaged emotionally. Like, you know, I mean, we, we talked about how Janeway in the end um, uh, tries to bring comfort to Caleb as he's dying, um, and and does that emotional investment in in his well being. You know, it would have been nice even for them to have said, "Well, look, there's not a lot we could do, but you know, we want you to know that we're behind you, and we hope that uh, over the years you are able to work your way free of this tyranny or whatever." Just some engagement with that that sense of oppressed and and, and oppressors. Well, really, what you're saying is that they didn't actually we also acknowledge have to be the situation. Really careful that we don't way, make really. assumptions about the fact that the resistance is any better than the Mokra. Um, that you know, we we from what we've glimpsed of the resistance, um, th th they seem to pretty be reasonably hard line and and what's in it for me kind of. And and I guess they have to be because they're actually fighting a fight against a, a, an, an oppressor, but. But, you know, the difference between uh, one person's uh, freedom fighter is another person's terrorist. And um, and I, I think it becomes extraordinarily complex and time-consuming for them to get involved in the way that we might we might have been suggesting there, that that, um, that, that uh, their, their, their personal goal is not to solve all the problems of the, uh, the Delta Quadrant, but to get home. Um, and what they need is Tellurium to do that. I think, Will, you're ignoring the fact that the Mokra are all wearing black and wearing helmets, so they're obviously the bad guys. Uh, and leather, yeah, yeah. That's and right. shiny well, boots. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that that's a, I think absolutely make, says they're the yeah. bad guys. I think we make that they, assumption. Yeah, well, look, but we don't know... torture people. We don't know that no, the resistance we're not making don't that assumption. people either. We don't know. We don't know. Like we haven't spent the time, and and I think it's too easy to back Luke Skywalker's attack against the Death Star as a heroic act. Um, the the reality is that uh, that that those terrorists killed, you know, uncounted numbers of stormtroopers and aid workers and janitors and all kinds of people when the Death Star blew up. Aid workers in the Death Star. Yeah, you know, people who were actually, you know, uh, you know, admin I'll support. I meant, uh, and and uh, oh, okay. uh, and, and and canteen officials. And you know, I, I thought you were suggesting that the Death Star had this bunch of <laughs> aid workers that would go to a planet they'd subjugated and then help people. <laughs> they, they, were, they were called the stormtroopers. They, they go down and bring peace. Look, I. I'm not sure you're going to be able to spin a press as well. I'm going to resist oh, no. this. Having watched Star Wars, I know it much better I'm, than I'm I know. I'm back out of Elizabeth no, camp no, now. No. Oh, That's all I've got to say. <laughs> not going to happen. And if you look at real modern-day oppressors, like in the last few centuries that we know about in our own world, they are not nice people. They might be good family men and go to church on Sunday, but they are not nice people. 
They gassed people. They tortured them. They did medical experiments on them. They took their belongings, ripped them from their homes. Um, and I'm talking about the Holocaust, of course, is one of the biggest, most recent um, evidence we have of repression. And you just can't say that that's a spun story and that there was oh, something I'm not really good about that. that. that well, I'm actually almost racing can't. to the bottom here by saying that they might both be bad. Um, they might both be that, that. And in fact, in a conflict, I think it's important to recognise that there's often badness or darkness on both sides because mm. conflict creates darkness. Um, Amanda and I have been watching uh, The Walking Dead to cope with our um, our um, our COVID lockdown, and um, there was a scene in that the other day where um, uh, the two sides actually ended up um, with one of each other's people, and they were going to do this kind of hostage handover, and it, it was all people pointing guns at each other, and it was only going to end in in bloodshed. Uh, and uh, in the midst of this, the mother of one of the people comes walking, the little old lady comes walking into the middle of all of this and actually asks what's going on and asks what's the meaning of all of this and why they're behaving the way they are. And in some ways almost shames both sides into actually admitting to their darkness and they end up coming to a compromise and a, and a, and a situation where they don't have to kill each other. And I, And I think that conflict always escalates when two sides can't admit to their own darkness. And I think that's um, that's something that's really important to remember. So I, I think The Walking think Dead would be true. greatly I'm... improved if there were more sort of sit-down, you know, fireplace talks with the zombies and try and, you know, get behind their, their, um, their <laughs> desires and see if you can't reach compromise. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's going to work, Lindsay, and you know that. But, you know, there's a difference between in a war where you've got the, the troops and there is darkness on both sides and there is goodness on both sides. But um, I would see that the, the troops that are fighting each other are yep. different from those who command them and those who weave the webs and those who set up what the goal is that they want to achieve. And the men on the ground may or may not know that. Um, and I think that you're right, Will, but... Sometimes you get such a darkness as you got with the Third Reich and what they did there that, you know, I don't, whatever the Allies were doing yeah. wrong, it pales. I, I do think that, that what you're saying is, is a really important point, though, Will, that, and I think particularly that sort of rushing into judgment and deciding um, on, on first glance who are the good guys and the bad guys, because I think we recognise that there's this, this history of doing that, particularly as as white people, um, that you know we decide that the people who look like us or the people who have the same sort of culture as us in some way must be the good guys, you know. And so you know you have the whole cowboys and Indians uh, thing, you know, where where a, a race of people yeah. who don't look like the white settlers are then cast as the the bad people, uh, you know, in in year upon year upon year of popular culture um and so i think you're absolutely right that that we need to be careful of rushing in and deciding who are the good guys and who are the bad guys what, why are the bad guys always dressed so uncomfortably that's what i don't understand like you know it's, it's, relax a little chill out you know? nobody's going to want to join your evil cause if you have to wear really uncomfortable chafing leather clothing them, all the you time. know it's about you know keeping your identity concealed and protecting you yeah i mean yep. it's interesting in in the original space scene, uh, you know, Khan was was quite a hippie and and was dressed quite uh, was. quite uh, chillingly and whatnot. And and but then of course in the Wrath of Khan, he's into the sort of leather jerkiny sort of stuff. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and we do tend to stereotype, don't we? We do like white on or normal or no, some sort of semblance of normality on our goodies and black on our baddies. We do. And look, I'm in no way ever, ever, never want to be heard to be defending Adolf Hitler and his policies um, in the Second World War. But, I mean, Winston Churchill had had terrible policies. Um, yeah, he did. The, the, the bombings of cities, when I went to Berlin a couple of years ago, that Berlin was still bearing the scars of the bombing raids that the British did. Stalin um, was was certainly not a good guy um, no, he in wasn't. this story. Um, and and the Americans they, they they dropped the bomb. They're the only country in the in the world, the only nation in the world to deploy a nuclear weapon twice. 
against a civilian population. So, so there's a sense in which we do tend to dress outside in in a in a better light um and 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 i guess you know uh, one of the things that we we'll often do in terms of human nature is we'll say well we're not as bad as them um and and so that makes us good it doesn't make us good it just makes us not as bad as them yeah now i'm not saying that ever that, that churchill was good he wasn't i mean he made some stupid i thought policy decisions about well anzac is one of them in the First World War, I mean, he was responsible for a lot of that plan and that just went completely catawampus. But sometimes you've got a really sinister thing where someone sets out to systematically commit genocide on an entire race of people. And, you know, that takes a bit of topping. Though we see it nowadays. I mean, we can see it with Uyghurs and we can see it with um, yep. the Hazar and other peoples who, who are minorities who are being oppressed by... Um, the folk who say that we are the ones who rule this land and you are minorities and you are interlopers in this space and, mm. and how they're being treated now. And I, don't, I wonder what we've learnt, actually. I mean, we talk about in various forums about never again having a Holocaust, but, you know, we're having them in small ways all the, all the time around the all world. The time. And, and we're yep. not actually doing much about it. And I wonder what we've learnt. Mm. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because, you know, there are so many other occasions where we look at particularly the uh, American empire, which uh, we in Australia so often kowtow to, and, and we think, why do they get involved in, in these different, you know, geopolitical messes? And, and you've gone in there and you've made things worse uh so yeah. so it's always difficult isn't it you know do you do you it go is. in and 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 intervene or or don't you and maybe as i think you know will or 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 elizabeth said earlier war has always got darkness on both sides and um yeah, yeah that you can't avoid that but maybe sometimes you can't avoid um getting involved even if it means that you are going to be, um, you know, in the mud. And I think the pathos of the the fool actually allows darkness and light to be held together, um, that the fool um, is aware of their darkness um, and, 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 the, and the idea of truth and lie actually cross over each other uh, in, in the role of the fool. Um, and I think, uh, you know, and, and today's fool is, is the actor. I mean, Every time an actor gets up there, and 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 we see uh, in the latest Black Widow um, uh, film, uh, Scarlett Johansson um, being this larger than life character, and absolutely fantastic. But there's there's no way a human being um, falls from high in the atmosphere, jumping from one piece to another, and then manages to land safely on the ground. Like it's just there's just no way that that actually occurs. But we are fooled. We suspend our disbelief because. We want to imagine our heroes in this way, and 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 so all of Hollywood, all of all of movie production is is in fact a a fiction designed to allow us to to engage in a story. It is, but I wonder, Will, when I listen to you talking, and I'm not doubt, I'm not debating at all what you're saying about the fool in literature and the fool in movies and other sort of art forms, but how does the fool work in reality? I mean, if you're looking like a, at a Myanmar, for instance, where you've got the the population there who really do oppress this minority they've got with the Hazar. Hazar is it the Hazar there? Um, in Rohingya. Myanmar? Hazara, yep. Oh, the, the Rohingya. Rohingya yeah. The Rohingya. Yep. Yeah, I've got the wrong minority. Um, with the Rohingya, um, how does a fool work there? Well, I think that's what um, I think what Calum shows us, uh, and what really fascinated me when I looked at. Um, this article about clowns at the gates of the camp. I'll, I'll link it into the show notes to have a look at. But but um, the, the, there is that sense in which um, a fool can slip behind the enemy lines. A fool can can be and tread harmlessly and helplessly where where power doesn't recognise them or or is is frightened to them. And, and I think that brings us back to our Jesus story. That that, that um, I think that the 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 role that Jesus plays. In relation to power, actually, can give us a sense of 
direction or purpose when we're thinking about well in this situation of escalation um do i do i resist with force or, or can i resist with foolishness um in a way that takes us in a different direction you're quite right will and and i think part of the the whole thing of the the fool and that resistance with weakness is that you may not win in human terms you know so whether it's it's the person standing in front of the tank in tiananmen square or the person standing in front of the tank uh you know in the fall of russia uh yeltsin and all that sort of stuff sometimes you may triumph sometimes you may not but um the world remembers that story uh, even though uh, China's, um, you know, dictatorial policies are still in place, the world remembers uh, Tiananmen Square, and and I think there's something important there. And 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 again, it it ties into the um, uh, the Jesus story that that there is a uh, you know one way of looking at the Jesus story, which is about God's moral persuasion of humanity um, by recognizing the the. The terribleness of sin and uh, God in the person of Jesus' willingness, uh, you know, to um, stand up to that even at the cost of uh, his life. Alas, for Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. You know, like the 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 the, the stark contrast is the fool dies. Um, more often than not, in our literature, the fool ends up dead. Um, it it's not a get out of jail free card for the fool. There is still risk. There is as much risk in foolishness as there is in force of, of being killed. Um, but that death um, has the capacity to, to, to change the world in a way that I don't think the forceful death can. Well, I have to say that um, th- this episode, I-, I know you weren't a huge fan, Elizabeth, but it's one of my wow. favourites. And um, I-, I think for me, it's about that interpersonal relationship of Calum and, and Janeway. And it in-, in some ways reminds me of a Picard episode in a light where he has this experience of having a family um, and-, and it changes him. And, you know, when you see Janeway holding the the necklace up at the end of the show, you've got that sense that in the same way, this is something that will stay with her. I mean, we'll never hear about it again, but, but no, you know, you, you like to think that it, <laughs> it's going to stay with her and mould yeah. her character. Let's not be too harsh because Picard does continue to play the tin whistle. He does. Um, and, and actually has several other episodes where the tin whistle actually has uh, significance. So, so maybe I don't know, we'll have to keep our eyes open. We might see this necklace again somewhere um, in, we in might, a future episode. She, I suppose she could just put it away in her little treasure box if she's got such a thing, like Chakotay's medicine roll, um, and keep it as a um, symbol of something that was important. It was a nice a touching memento. scene at the end, I think. But, you know, I did feel a little bit dissatisfied because there was no kind of queries about how poor old Tuvok went. This man was tortured. You know, he should at least be given some sort of medal for bravery or something or some sort of, you know, accolade or even an inquiry after his health. Um, and yeah, I thought didn't even get know, a couple of days off. No, he didn't. And there was just nothing there. And Star Trek always annoys me a bit that way, that I feel that there's yeah. these little loose ends that just should be tidied up. The PTSD from this trip is going to be immense, I think, um, in in particular. Uh, look, looking forward into next week, uh, I did have a sneak peek looking forward into next week's episode, Prototype. Um, it's going to have some amazing uh, further in-depth conversations about conflict um, and the nature of conflict and, and othering and the difference between people. So I'm really looking forward to uh, what that episode um, provides for us. Uh, it's a it's a Balana shines episode, so it'll be a really I, I I really like those ones where Balana gets to be uh, an awesome example of an engineer, um, and um, I'm looking forward to that. And it's another um, AI episode. Another AI episode as well. What so is an AI very... episode? Artificial intelligence. Absolutely. Ah, okay. Yep. So robots and stuff, which will be good. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to that. Um, and uh, please leave your comments. Um, if you strongly disagree with anything that Lindsay says, then um, <laughs> feel free to put those comments into the, uh, into the Never Odd or Even Facebook page. 
Um, and uh, I'm happy to report that uh, we had our first team meeting for Loki, uh, uh, the Sacred Timeline, last Monday, uh, and that we'll be uh, filming, um, well, 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 streaming for Patreon viewers um, at one o'clock next Monday. So if you're a Patreon viewer and you'd like to check us out on Monday um, as we um, as as you get a, a live preview, we'll be doing what's called episode zero. Um, and we won't be releasing episode zero until after all of the episodes of, of the Loki podcast have been done. So um, we decided we get all of our nonsense out of the way in the first episode and do all of our Loki backstory and, 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 and the like so that we could get get right into focusing on, on the, each episode as it comes out. So if you're a Patreon supporter and you or you're not a Patreon supporter and you want to be involved in that and get yourself along to Patreon uh, at Never Odd or Even Media uh, and uh, and sign up and you too could actually get the chance to watch the um, the Loki team live and all their shenanigans. Um, I think that brings us to the end of our episode today. Yep. Um, thanks again um, for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next week. I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Rain. <laughs>